period of time, this period of inquiry. It takes place three times during the retreat together, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at this time. The inquiry time is a period for uh, expression and exploration of any area of uh, interest, concern, priority for you about anything whatsoever. With the inquiry time, there's the uh, cushion, or you can sit on the uh, edge of things, metaphorically and uh, actually, uh, here with the microphone, and anyone who wishes may wish to come up and touch upon anything that may include, of course, anything which was uh, said in the uh, introductory talk yesterday evening or in instructions and talks today, any of the practices or experiences, any areas of uh, interest uh, for you in the, the Dharma and the drama of life. The intention with the inquiry period is that it is a real contribution towards insight and understanding for all of us without any exception. Sometimes in the inquiry it might last a couple of minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, half hour, sometimes gone for an hour or more. The escape clause is the word thank you. At any time the person or myself can say uh, thank you and this is the indication that it is complete. It may be that you have some questions you wish to ask me. Very, very uh, welcome. I probably won't answer them, but you're welcome to ask. I might do. Or I might return the question back without you realizing it. And some dialogue gets underway. It requires from all of us the fullness of listening. Because we as a species, my goodness, we have to learn to listen to each other and listen to life. We are more dead than we realize. In the act of listening, there is the listening to two people who are speaking. Total listening is simultaneous listening inwardly to your responses as you listen, hopefully with interest, hopefully some empathy, Hopefully it feels valuable and important. There's no guarantee of anything in life, including that, of course. So you may listen and you might find it tedious. Notice it. You might find it more boring than all your television programs. Notice it. You might feel agitated. It's theoretical. It's too emotional. It's too this, too that. Not enough this, not enough that. Notice your response. That's all. Total listening, outer listening and inner uh, listening. Yeah. Sometimes a good person's voice who's sitting here is the voice for lots of us in the room. It's our voice up here. We'll see. So this is the inquiry time, a contribution, hopefully, no guarantee, uh, for some insight and understanding for each and every one of us. I, uh, sitting beside me is our guardian angel, Ruby. There, many years she's been guardian angel. And I also have here what's called an iRiver, sort of iPod, but this is an iRiver for stream enterers. No. And, um, <laughs> and there's two little um, microphones here. What this means is if it is okay with you, and I will check, that it's recorded. However, if it is recorded, it then will enter into the public domain, meaning it could go anywhere. It could go on the net. Even worse, your mother could hear it. Even worse, your therapist. Oh, you are the therapist, sorry. Um, so, uh, <laughs> if you don't want it to be recorded, absolutely fine, we're into emptiness. So, um, I just won't press the record 
button. So I'll, leave, I will, I'll check with you uh, when, when you, if any of you uh, do come up. So this is a period for inquiry. Anyone who uh, wishes to come, any area that you wish to explore or touch upon, you're very, very uh, welcome. The microphone is here, and you're welcome. or if it's more comfortable for you, just bring the cushion here and sit on the, uh, the edge. Yes, anyone, anytime. Oh, yes, please, yes, come. It's okay to record? Yeah. All right. So, yeah, you can clip it on you. It's a little easier. Sit any position you like. Yes. Down the button. Good. Yes. Yeah, Christopher, it's been um, literally exactly eight years since I came to my first possible retreat here mm-hmm. with you in Sharda in 1998. And so it seems kind of like somehow fitting that this is kind of like my last Vipassana retreat mm-hmm. before I go back into. Uh, go back to IMS, Forest mm. Refuge, into prolonged uh, silence. Mm. Your question, last, or your statement last night, which, as Sylvia pointed out, begged the question, um, that the wise um, do not abide uh, in mindfulness. In mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, obviously. <laughs> what is it that the wise <laughs> do abide in? Uh, I've, you know... As you know, so much of, of the early part of my years in learning and, you know, as a beginner with Vipassana and traveling around here and there and yonder to try to find my way in a spiritual practice has been had to, has had to do with disentangling myself from um, my life, my mm. past, mm. Uh, you know, and being open for something else. And, and it, it's come down rather dramatically in my mind in the yes. last year to like, hey, you know, there's samsara here and there's nirvana there, nibbana there. Mm. And in my mind, uh, I have, I kind of like I have, I think I have, a, uh, you know, kind of flashes of intuitive awareness of nibbana. I don't, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I know to say. I'm not no. claiming anything no, no. here. No. But it's just really clear to me what the issues are in samsara. We'd like to give some of the good people here unfamiliar with uh, some of the concepts there would help. Give in English uh, a a definition or an explanation for you of the word samsara. How would you describe it? Samsara is the secular round of existence mm-hmm. uh, that we, we go through when, when uh, with birth. We proceed from birth to, you know, aging, disease, old age, and death. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in, as I understand it, um, historically, uh, that, that can be understood either one of two ways. I mean, literally, like there's something that doesn't really die when you, when, when you die. Uh, that can be reincarnation. Some people see it as that. Some people see it as the consciousness okay. somehow transmitting somehow. Can I put it into more relative uh, context uh, here? And it is, as you point out, one uh, way of describing it. But the literal meaning, literal, rather than the uh, traditional interpretation, is wandering on from one thing to another. And as human beings, we find ourselves pushed and pulled around by the forces of life and existence, landing on this, landing on something else, landing on this, birth and death, coming and going, rising and falling, pushed from one thing to another. And this becomes, in a way, the story of our existence, uh, which is there. And there's something unsatisfactory about the way our life is pushed and pulled around by our inner life and by the outer life. 
And are we so helplessly stuck like this? Or is there a way of looking at all of this, which we're not, we don't feel trapped in it all, in these forces and circumstances of life? And we can go more deeply into it rather than living like waves on the ocean uh, here. Just say a little bit. You said, your current intention is to go to IMS, the uh, lovely center on the uh, East Coast. They have this long-term retreat center, the Forage Refuge that you referred to. Is this for a few days or weeks or months? What's, what's your intention here? Well, given that plans, you know, I mean, obviously I, don't, I can only plan up to a certain extent, of but course. I would not be doing this if I didn't. I would not be giving up a place in San Francisco again. I would not be going through all the upheaval of, yes. you know, giving away stuff, putting my stuff in storage if I did not intend to do it. Mm. Uh, you know, to be in silence uh, somewhere between, you know, eight and ten months out right. of the year for the next four to six years. That's kind of like the criteria that, right? that I brought to bear on myself. Sorry, sorry. To be, <laughs> impressive here, to be in silence for eight to ten months a year for the next four, four to six years. Right. Hmm. Strong motivation. Because. Because, yes, because. If there's anything I think I know, I, and here again, I'm not, I'm not claiming any great wisdom, but it's just that I know the, the, the thing about going into retreat and coming out. I never come out of retreats well. However, I've done the retreat when I'm in them. I come out, and, and literally, samsara makes me miserable. Now, I can get accommodated to that. All right. But there is nothing in my life that samsara has been good to me in a lot of yes, ways. Right. I've been extraordinarily <laughs> blessed. All right. Are there experiences I've had in life that I wouldn't trade for anything? No. Right. I also have the opportunity to move beyond it by way of practicing. I really, I really feel like freedom is possible in this nice. very lifetime, as has been said, and that's what I want. All right, and, good yeah. spirit. All right, nice to nice to hear, and uh, uh, the commitment uh, as as well. So sometimes we look at our life; it can seem a little bit can seem dualistic. For some, the dualism would show itself wandering or going into retreat and going out back into the so-called world. Going into retreat, going into the so-called world. And therefore, wandering back and forth. It can be a samsara of itself. Yes. Mm, there. All things have to be uh, attended to. To come back to the original uh, point that you referred to, in the closing sentence of uh, yesterday evening's talk, and I didn't take it any further. I said something like, the wise, mindfulness is not the place of abiding of the wise. Okay. Even though much of the rest of the talk was speaking about the value of mindfulness. I am a teacher of mindfulness. My daughter can't believe it. <laughs> Look at others. But however... So there's mindfulness. In the um, closing question, since that's part of the motivation that brought you here, what was it that moved you here? Why did that last sentence, which was rather an unfinished statement, what was it that touched you Well, it really made me happy because, uh, because it just rang so true. Say some more. Uh, you know, mindfulness, you can be mindfulness and get into all kinds of craziness. Yes. And you can know you're getting into it, and still there's something about it that lets you know you want it. Mm-hmm. And, and okay, I'll deal with the craziness later. There might be a price to pay, but I will deal with it. All right. Uh, you know, and, um, okay. and so it makes me happy. It just makes me very, very happy. And <laughs> I have been around long enough to know that. Uh, it's easy to attach on to, uh, to attach on to ideas. Yes. Okay. Now I can say, okay. Now mindfulness is not it, mm-hmm. and I can start looking at what is it. All right. And I can come up with a, an idea and a conception, and boy, I've got my life planned from here into nibbana. You know. All right. Slowly, slowly here. As you point out, that we can be sometimes mindful, 
it may not be especially uh, deep. It may not be supported with wisdom. We think we're mindfully or consciously starting something or beginning uh, something, whatever it might be. And the outcome of it is totally opposite of what we thought. Mindfulness, uh, mindful of this, I'll start this, I'll do this, but we can't perceive where it will, where it will lead. Is the function of mindfulness to reveal to us what we are mindful of, where it will take us to? Is the function of mindfulness? What's the function of the mindfulness? Well, it's to keep us in that place where, where we can cut through and see things as they really are. All right. Present. Mm-hmm. Now. Yes. But, as we all know from our immediate experience, that none of us, and I have not met anybody, can put hand on heart and say, I am mindful all the time. Nobody. I've never met a person on this planet who could. Why is that? Why can't we be really mindful in every moment from wake up to sleep and even with our dreams as they're happening? Well, I mean, I see it as pure habit, karma, deeply embedded karma, uh, which, ha- you know, responds to, uh, you know, stimuli and, and acts out All right. condition. Would someone, this is mildly hypothetical, but it's important, say has no karma? That means karma in Dharma language is the unsatisfactory influences of the past on the present. This is karma. The unsatisfactory influences that shape our lives and our present moment, our present situation, with all the movement and intentions that can go with it. Would we be, when we're not under the influence of unsatisfactory influences and patterns and tendencies, would we still be able to be mindful all the time in every moment? It's kind of like, is that a trick question? Not a trick question, I promise, <laughs> honestly. It's an honest question. Would you say for yourself, in your experience, you said eight years, of, uh, uh, we've known each other and uh, with other teachers, you've been to India, etc. That when you're not feeling the influence, habit, or pattern, or tendency, or whatever it might be, you know, from the yeah. impacting on the present moment and affecting it. Would you say when you're not in the influence of it, therefore, the result of this is being mindful in each moment? Well, I mean, I have to first say it's it's absolutely inconceivable. I can't there, as far as I know, there's never been one human being on the face of the planet that didn't have karma. Now, you know, uh, secondly... uh, Secondly, if that should exist, yes. I, I mean, how can I use that as a model? Because that's, I mean, that's hardly my experience. Right. Okay. It will never be my experience. I wasn't being, I wasn't being incredibly ambitious. I was just saying, the important point, because it's here, because I want to answer the question or we answer it. At times, we can say, right now in the moment, I don't feel a weight of my past on me. Right. I don't feel unhealthy patterns. I don't feel trapped, trapped in my behavior, my obsessiveness, my addictiveness, my issues, my problems, my story. It doesn't weigh upon me. I feel light. I feel spacious. I feel comfortable with the moment. I feel content with myself. So I haven't got this karma the way. Sorry, yeah, waiting on me. I feel calm and comfortable at peace. I don't feel this weight from the past called karma there. In such moments, Mm -hmm. for a few minutes, hours, days, whatever, in such moments, can one put one's hand on one's heart without the weight of karma and say, I am mindful in every moment? I cannot. No, exactly. Neither can I. 
I've never met anybody. What does it say about mindfulness? It's conditioned. It's a exactly. Conditioned Lovely. It is, comes about with the conditions. The conditions of energy is one. The conditions of interest, as I mentioned yesterday evening. The, sometimes the conditions of intention. Receptivity. Being in touch with ourselves. Whoa, the list starts to grow a little bit. Little change in the conditions and the old mindfulness level goes up. And it goes down, and it, goes, and it comes out, etc. Right. Without any weight of karma pressing on me uh, there. So, when I say mindfulness is not the abiding place of the wise, what's your response? I guess my response would be that I'm certainly not among the wise yet because I think slowly, it would slowly, be a wonderful slowly, slowly, place for me to slowly, abide right slowly, now. Slowly, Don't be so judgmental on yourself. Yes, there's plenty of wisdom. I already hear it. I don't believe that last sentence. So rather than prefix it, I am not this, I am not that. You talk from your experience. Okay. Why is there's no statement of the wise, which says, I, the wise abide in mindfulness. Well, the word abide would, would tend oh. to indicate, doesn't it, that, that, that all of that's okay, that it's okay to stay there. Yes. Just that. Not only, I mean, yes, maybe you'll always be mindful, but, but that suggests just mindfulness is, right. is sufficient. All right. But mindfulness is dependent on all the conditions, as you pointed out, and therefore is easily changeable. Right. Sometimes we're very mindful, sometimes less mindful, sometimes extraordinarily unmindful. The conditions have changed and affected the mindfulness. From your wisdom, how do you respond to this? The conditions affect the quality of mindfulness, the presence of mindfulness? Uh, I I, um, am very grateful to know that. And I'll give myself some credit for having learned that. Mm -hmm. And I see right now, this particular moment in my life, is having done a whole lot of heavy lifting to get myself in a position where I can create the conditions for Uh just that. All right. Okay. So the generating of uh, the conditions in life make a contribution to mindfulness. The conditions change. We can't necessarily have all the conditions where we want. We're, We're human. If mindfulness is dependent on so many conditions, and they're valuable ones and important ones, and the wise recognize this, what is the abiding place of the wise? You can't rely. Who would want to abide and have as the abiding place mindfulness when it is so dependent on so many conditions and it suddenly goes? Who would want to make mindfulness the end result when it's so vulnerable to change, when not one human being is able to sustain it morning, noon and night? Not a soul has done it. Nobody. Recognizing that with wisdom while appreciating the value of mindfulness, what is the abiding place of the wise? I don't believe that there's nothing that doesn't change. Slowly, slowly. Is this wisdom or a view? I like to think it's wisdom. It's not. Period. Okay. If truth changes, what does it mean? 
truth is reality. That means truth comes and goes. Truth disappears. Well, my question is: Is there is there really such is there really a truth that doesn't change? Yes. And, and I would. That's what I was trying to say. I guess maybe that's what I. That's what was in my yeah. mind. Right. The truth. Truth doesn't change. The capital T truth. 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 Whatever that is. All right. That's easy to these things. Hang, hope you're following in and hanging in with this. Not an easy area. Life brings about conditions, this is a repetition. Right. We generate together as a community together conditions. The conditions allow for contribution of mindfulness to see things clearly what is going on, which requires other conditions to repeat energy, interest, focus, practice, methods, techniques, silence, people being together sharing something important together. All conditions make it possible. Every one of them requires the other for it to happen. If one of the conditions in here changes, everything changes. Somebody got up right now and started singing, shouting and dancing, hitting the gong. Whoa! Retreat form is just collapsed. Silence is gone. Chaos has taken over. Why not? However, conditions change, everything changes. So we put the conditions together. We share, we support each other with our conditions. Helps to generate mindfulness, which is a condition for other things, and it is conditioned by other things. What is the abiding place of the wise? Well, uh, my response would be that that's for the wise to determine. Which is, and I, I don't have any, and I don't have any words for for a, what 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 I can't help believe is there. All right, I just don't have any words. For fine, it. all right, fine. So, your willingness to just, as we explore, bring awareness to the variety right. of uh, conditions. Understanding that all keep supporting each other. Our life is full of conditions. Full of them. It doesn't take much to change one condition and <coughs> everything starts having to change. So it seems rather, we're rather vulnerable, as it were. Rather dependent if we're reliant upon conditions. So, the abiding place of the wise is in the unconditioned. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. A couple of uh, quiet minutes. I'll say anyone, any time, and then another may wish to come. Yes, anyone, anytime. Yes, come.
Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the... Are you in the um, NYPD? No. <laughs> no. Right. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the split that I see between sexuality and spirituality. Because oh. I feel like with the people that I know, people are either very, very spiritual and don't really ever talk about sex, or the opposite. And it seems to me, especially, I, I actually don't... Um, officially consider myself a Buddhist. I love meditation. No, do I. (laughs) So carry on. But it seems I have a hard time um, uh, kind of merging those two thoughts in my mind since to me part of sexuality is desire. Um, And that kind of conflicts with the whole Buddhist notion of the origin of suffering being desire. Mm -hmm. And uh, just as a personal side note, like, I'm gay, and to me, allowing myself to desire is what brought me the greatest happiness. So my body always kind of recoils whenever I hear this kind of Buddhist philosophy about desire because from my experience, even when those desires weren't fulfilled, just that sweetness of allowing yourself to desire brought me joy. Mm. So... I've always kind of had, that's the one thing in Buddhism that I can never really mesh in my mind is sexuality and spirituality because it just, the nature of sexuality just doesn't seem to fit. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> uh, with you. Um, uh, I'll come into little. I'll uh, ask uh, a little and so we can hear your good voice. It's a long theme, this one. (laughs) Secular culture and religious culture are, for the most part, utterly clueless around sexuality. Both of them. In secular culture despite all the sincere and important efforts that have been made, there are still just as many sexual issues, sexual problems that are taking place in a whole variety and arena of different ways. As we all well know, the society, secular society is sex-obsessed. Films, advertising, etc. The monster of this... Uh, gross uh, pornography industry on the net, which is the biggest industry on the net, only shows to us how secular culture has not been able to come to a clear, wise understanding around sexuality and the beauty of it. Religion and sexuality, forget it. (laughs) It is equally, in its repressive mode, just as clueless And it's going to need good voices around, such as yours and others, to actually really address this area and this uh, issue. There is a... Quite often, I'm speaking in the generalizations, of course, a lot of unresolved issues. Other religions have their issues, and I want to comment on that about that but I certainly can comment on Buddhism since I know it inside out. There is a a view, it's a a sad view, that still weaves its way through two and a half thousand years that somehow or other sexual intimacy, the beautiful act of making love, has to be transcended. There is some view that when we're really developed and advanced, then sexual energies will drop away and we'll go beyond all of that. And this view is there because of a lack of exploration and a problem around desire, uh, which is there. And that brings about a conservativeness 
the most conservative Western country I go to is the United States. It's ultra-conservative. It reflects itself in problems around authority, love, sexuality, friendship, intimacy, etc. Very problem, very problematic area here. And it's going to need much more uh, adventurous outlook, much more interest in this area. Because the message that often, but not always, goes out is keep the precepts, not engaging in uh, sexual abuse and sexual harm, etc. It's very, very important and vitally important. And if um, sexual energies are rising in the retreat, in the meditation, just watch them come and go. It's a Freudian nightmare. (laughs) And this only reflects the problem around it there. And it has its little shadows in meditation centers. Life is love. Life is eros. Life is sensual. Life is beingness, with love and care and respect. It's a little thing. My dear partner and I, we spend 24-7 together. We go to other retreat centers 24-7 together. Spirit Rock, 16-7 together. One upstairs, one downstairs. Why? Why? A smile. When we were in, on the Yatra in France, 200 of us, taking a shower was not easy. A little bamboo hut, maybe waist high. You're going with the buckets, not me, I never, I'm English, we don't bother to shower. You go in, men, women, and they're hanging out together, having a shower at the Buddha Field Festival. Little Dharma wallers. And people are just having showers together next door to each other. It's going to be a long time before this happens at Spirit Rock. <laughs> Something in the culture here, and, and the Anglo English world is. But the Buddha Field is in England, which is rather miraculous about the showers. There's something in the culture, in the religious culture, which is afraid of sexuality. Views it with a certain extra seriousness. Regards it as a a problem, different, an issue than other ones. It's a part of the fabric of life. So, let me ask a little bit. I I mean, I could go on for hours on this theme, (laughs) believe me. In terms of um, love and desire, because I think this is where the, the, the problem actually uh, lies is and where there's terrible confusion in religion and, and, and Buddhism is riddled with confusion. What's the difference between love, which moves towards, and desire, which moves towards? How, how would, you, would you give any difference between the two? Um, I would say that desire, there's a grasping element to it that doesn't recognize the interconnectionness of the two things. That you desire to make yourself better, but there's a a hierarchy to what you desire that you're not actually connected. Whereas love, it's more the same. We go one, beautiful here, right on, right on spot here. So the force of desire is carries with it the, the self, the ego, as you point out, takes its, upon itself a position, I want, desire, I want, I want. And that wanting, that's the force of desire, this is what the Buddha is talking about, 
has as its impact on another human being which is out of connection or can be out of connection with what, where they are. So the force of desire carries in it a blind spot. I want. And therefore there is a miss or disconnection in its most aggressive form, power and control, it's called rape. It's called sexual assault. It's called coercion. It's called manipulation. So in that form, in those forms, various intensities uh, of it, there is some kind of desire which has the blind spot for the person that one's engaging with. But what's, say a little bit about love. Um, well, that's a little bit more difficult. <laughs> um, From your experience? Um, there's a sense there's a sense of interconnectedness that you're not um, you're not desiring the other person to simply better yourself. Mm-hmm. One's not desiring the other person to better oneself. One's not desiring the other person to get what one wants because one will feel good about it. Called right. having sex. Called making love or, or, or whatever. From your experience or awareness, how clear is the distinction between the two for you? Can the two get mixed up together? Two questions. How clear is the distinction between the act of movement with love, the distinction between that and desire in the way that the Buddha and you are describing. And can love and desire get mixed in together? Question two. Um, I absolutely think they can get mixed up together. I think it's very hard to distinguish between the two. I All think right. you can clearly see the I can, two extremes, I can. Yeah. but, but um, All right. oftentimes it's difficult to tell what your motivation, or maybe you've got both motivations going on at the same time. Can you drop the you language? <laughs> and use the I language. Um, <laughs> sometimes I find it difficult to distinguish between the two, and I feel like right. I've got a dual motivation going on. All right, nice. And I appreciate the honesty there. So I agree. Sometimes there is the movement of love, but in its engagement, called making love, called touch, called intimacy it can carry with it desire as the blind spot, which is, as a blind spot, unaware, unmindful, unaware of the impact that the desire is having on the one that one is making love to. How are you going to distinguish so that you can enter into the act of making love with love, free from the blind spot? which can't cognize where the other person is. How are you going to distinguish the two? Well, I think one valuable tool would be self-awareness or mindfulness. Yes. To really cultivate that, to understand why you're doing the things you're doing. And okay, why the things that I'm... I'm or what yeah, things that I'm doing. <laughs> All right. We, are we just going to rely on our mindfulness and knowing ourself as the clarity which will ensure our intentions have a pure-heartedness with love, with the intimacy. Are we going just to rely on that? Are you going to rely on that? I don't know. I don't know what else there is to do other than There's to There's plenty. Really... What are you going to ask the person? I'm going to... What? Yeah. You say, if I just rely on myself, it's, it's a beautiful uh, <laughs> and important. But there is another person involved. You're not making love to yourself. You've got somebody in front of you. What are you going to ask this person? What are you going to check with this person, with your love? Because you don't want to enter into desire which makes you feel guilty, uncomfortable, sad, disappointed or 
ends up the other person feeling used or hurt or misunderstood or whatever. What, what are you going to find out? So that she, that he knows from you that your love is there, free from desire. What, what are you going to find out from him? I would find out what he feels about me, what he feels about the situation. I would try to find out who he is as a person. All right. I'd like to see him as a person, not a body. <laughs> All right. Okay. So see the whole person and not as a body. Sometimes the person, the man you make love to, he may, um, may have a tendency he just wants to please. He may have a tendency that he really needs to feel loved. He may be speaking in such a way he's saying everything that he wants you to hear so that you and he will make love. And therefore, he's actually deceiving himself and deceiving you because afterwards, he feels let down, disappointed. What happens if the person's just speaking to keep your attention? <laughs> I don't know. You don't know? I don't other than being really honest with yourself and, and you know, asking the other, or trying to get to know the other person mm-hmm. as a whole person, mm. I'm kind of drawing a blank as to what else you can do. <laughs> I'm just questioning. I'm not looking for the simple answer, but I appreciate the points that you're making. For some, the act of making love is a very deep, profound, significant experience. The intimacy, the closeness of the bodies and the words and the touch and the feelings that go with it is a very, for some, a very, very strong experience. For some, it's an expression of commitment. A commitment which continues into the future. For another person, it doesn't have that association. It's a temporary event of closeness and intimacy. I don't want to express a view either way about this, but I'm just saying. How is it for you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I'd like to say it's always an expression of divine love going into the future, but probably a mixture of both. How will you make that clear? So that the person, for the other person, it might be, as I say, an expression of your commitment to him. And he may not realize you're not thinking along those lines. I would just be honest. How would you express your honesty? (laughs) Um, I mean, explicitly, I would say... I'm not really looking for a relationship right now. Or, I mean, if that's mm. what it was, I would just try to be as honest as possible as to what I was looking for, right. if I wasn't looking for something permanent. In behind closed doors, even with the sweetest of questions, wanting to be honest with yourself, wanting to be honest with the good man there... <laughs> The old sexual energies. People will agree to anything to get into bed with each other. (laughs) Is the best time to ask these questions late at night? (laughs) Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) When are you going to ask them? The Buddha said... That's a good term. He says, in those areas of mat- which matter to important to us, it's with the right person. You feel it's the right person. Right place, right time, right subject. I mean, right means appropriate, wise, skillful. Mm-hmm. Right person, right place, right time, right subject. So sometimes late at night, wrong time. 
Behind closed doors, wrong place. Right. Even if it's the right person <laughs> and the right subject, you and your sex life. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um. <laughs> I only asked the question. It's, it's, it's a dead easy job. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I just try to be as aware as I can as early as possible. Like, I right. lead nice. someone on oh. all the way up to that point and then say, oh, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Oh, nice. Somebody <laughs> slowly, some good insights. To be as clear and aware as earlier on so that you don't lead someone on to a position where it ends up painful and distressing for you, for him, or for both. That's honesty. Mm-hmm. That's being very, very clear uh, with oneself. That's being a truly good friend mm-hmm. to, to another. And it gives an opportunity then for a, a deepening of uh, uh, friendship so that friendship does abide deeply. Can the sexual experience be a substitute for something else? Yes. Tell us. Um, it can be a substitute, um, a cure for loneliness. It could be a, a feeling of power over someone. Right. Could, nice. I mean, it could be the old Freudian, you know, I want daddy or mommy's love. I mean, it, I could go on and on about what All right. it's a substitute okay. for. Okay, all right. Good insight. <laughs> all right. One is loneliness and the other is the power over. How is that in your world? How is that in my world? Yeah. Are you comfortable not being in a relationship? Are you comfortable with aloneness? Yes. yes? I would think. I, I think I am. All right. Good spirit. I mean, I have my moments when I'm not. Yeah, but, but, but generally. But in general, I think I'm comfortable being alone. All right. What about power? Desire and power tend to get into bed with each other. Yeah, so, I'm probably less good with that. All right. What will bring more humility? Power is a conceit of the mind, isn't it? What will bring more humility in your relationship? So you wish the relationship, if it engages in sexuality, is intimate, is loving, and not in desire, therefore not in the field of power. What will lower the threshold of power to bring a more humble relationship to intimacies of making love um well first of all it's kind of an easy answer but just to be aware that power is even involved i mean sometimes it's so easy to to not even see that and you have to Mm. really analyze it to realize that part of the dynamic is you having power over someone Mm. Mm -hmm. but the power over is a disconnected event really isn't it yeah can it be that the two people with love and deep friendship and the knowledge and knowing of uh, each other can share in something which doesn't feel like power over and power under? Um, I mean, I guess it goes back to the, I mean, if you feel a sense of interconnection. If and I feel a sense of... If, if, if I feel a sense of interconnection, then there isn't that hierarchy of I have right. power over you, you have power over me, or whatever it is. There's just a feeling of, of mutual All right. melding nice. instead nice. of... Nice. So that establishing and being as clear as the heart can be of interconnectedness, it's terribly easy to feel, oh, I am connected, I'm so deeply connected with you, and therefore assume that the warmth and the apparent comfort of the other is reflecting his interconnectedness with you. Mm. It will take a, a total sense of attention and presence, as you said, listening to yourself, and equally, and not a drop less, listening to the good voice, the intimations, the body language of the one that you're close to. Mm. And then... Love is spiritual. Love-making is spiritual. Mm. It's a deeply spiritual event. It belongs to life. And it's not desire. The Buddhist world has yet to learn this. <laughs> okay.
Okay. Okay. Thank nice you. to talk with you. Thank okay. you. We'll have a, a couple of quiet minutes just to uh, finish, then I'll give a short reflection. Sometimes in our fields of experience, events um, uh, touch us as we were uh, listening to a few moments ago. And living in this extraordinary field of varying uh, conditions helps us to see how relative our quote-unquote self is that a life is supported, is reliant upon all these various conditions to help something happen. We participate in it. You and I, we contribute to it. But it takes an authentic wisdom with us to really appreciate and to really understand it is not possible for all conditions to come together in the way that we would wish, even with the best of intentions, no matter what it's about. And it brings to us, if we've understood this well, a certain humility to our life. That even with the best of intentions, sometimes extraordinarily and beautifully and preciously, things, situations come together. We've participated in a process to make something happen. Beautiful. But we need the humility to really see this is not always possible. Life is not an event to support self-interest. It is not an event to support the interests of the I and the me and the my. If we can understand this well, we live close to the conditions we are part of the conditions. We belong to them. 
They enter into our life, they affect our life, they make our life. And we engage in them. But let not any of them be our resting place. Let's not depend on any of them. Yesterday evening, Sylvia quoted this great discourse of the Buddha, four applications of mindfulness, the four meaning body, feelings, states of mind, and the Dharma. And there's a simple statement with a great home truth to it. One applies mindfulness to the extent necessary. Beautiful. doesn't say practice and be mindful all the time because he knows it's a hopeless endeavor. We're human. We just want to apply mindfulness to the extent necessary in order that we live freely in this world. And to live freely in this world is not to be a prisoner to any of the conditions, even though you and I, we live so close to them. We love mindfulness. We explore it. We love the capacity to concentrate and focus in a single-pointed way. We engage in it, but not to cling to. Just seeing it's one of the valuable conditions of life, of human life. Just to the extent necessary. In the letter, appreciate both voices very much this afternoon. I do see from the privilege of traveling and listening to uh, people in various parts of the world, four continents a year, that our sangha, our networks, really have to start looking at sexuality. Really have to give it a radically fresh view about it. Because the current one isn't working. In secular culture, it's not working. It's manipulated, abused in a thousand and one ways, you and I know well. And the other is denial and not really discussing it or reducing it or making it something problematic and all the marginalizations and isolations that go along uh, with it. It's a, be a, a middle way in the exploration of sexuality. To find its place in our life, to ask the questions, to question ourselves and, and with each other. To look at the dynamics of it respectfully. And for that to happen, it has to be on the agenda. It has to be talked about. It can't be left put aside as though it's some marginal little event. It's a significant event in life. Whether we're in a relationship or whether we're not. Whether we're happy in the relationship or whether we're not. Whether we want to be in a relationship or whether we don't. Those kind of energies and presences in our life, whether we're in the heterosexual community or the gay community or the lesbian community or the bisexual community, it doesn't matter. Dharma's not concerned with those preferences. Dharma is concerned with where there's unhappiness, where there's a problem. Dharma is concerned with love, love, love. And our communities and our networks, we have to explore this. The present one is a controlling one. It's not working. Just not working. Enough. Thank you for listening. Some standing meditation at this time, is it? Or? A number of people have uh, interviews with me, so oh. I'll uh, leave with both of those people. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sylvia. So there's some standing meditation indoors or uh, outdoors, just standing on the earth, being present. Thank you for the lovely contributions and your kind act of listening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.